It's from John chapter 19, verses 30 through 42. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus' side is pierced. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, the scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. God, please be seated. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, you would have observed that this, the Passion Week, the focus from Palm Sunday through Easter, is the second half of his Gospel. More than the other Gospel writers, John dedicates over half of his book to the Passion of Christ. The first half of the Gospel of John could be appropriately outlined as the signs. The great sticky notes that highlight that this is the one. That this is the Messiah. Observe his life. Listen to his words. It's the life of Christ on my behalf. It's the life that I should, as a child of God, be living before God the Father. And then the second half of the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John is devoted to one week in the life of Christ. And it could be appropriately titled The Passion of Christ or His Death and Resurrection on My Behalf. And in addition to Him living the life that I should have lived, He is now dying the death that I should have died. But the reward is is that it culminates in the resurrection where His life and His death on my behalf 
is accepted by God because you can't kill a purely innocent, sinless man. And because he is vindicated in that he would die and take on our sin and he would give us, in the great exchange, Martin Luther calls it, he would take his life and record of his death and put it on me, and he would take my life and record and the death that I deserve and put it on himself. And God said with the resurrection, Amen, it is true. And that transfer has taken place. But if you were there that day, beginning in verse 30 of John 19, and you had heard Jesus Christ cry out, It is finished. You've got two ways to look at that. You could look at that as a cry of defeat. I am finished. Or you could hear it as it's one word in the original languages, accomplished. Accomplished. Complete. In fact, the word there means that it is completely complete. There's nothing missing that the, the grand traje trajectory of his life was the culmination of everything that took place at that point on the cross. But if you were looking at one who is finished, then you would have been seeing a marred human being on the cross. You would have been seeing a man that did not look like a man. In Isaiah chapter 52, we read these words. Isaiah 52 tells us that he was, in verse 14, appearance as many were astonished, astonished at you. That is to be in awe, to drop your mouth open and say, it's astonishing. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's moving to me. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That his appearance did not look like a man. The man did not look like a man. It was so abused. It was so marred. And we also believe it was in such emotional and spiritual agony. It's what we mean in the Apostles' Creed when we say he descended into hell. It was on the cross that he went through hell. Hell being separation, completely separated from God. That is hell. And it's a paradox that we cannot understand. It's not a contradiction, but it is a mystery. That how Christ, that is the Son of God, could be separated from God the Father. But the man, Jesus Christ, never having known separation from God as his Father, faces hell on the cross. And it was agonizing. And it was a hell that you and I will never know. And that, on top of the physical abuse that that body had experienced, his accusers, his enemies, the apathetic, the indifferent, who see him on the cross, would look at him and say, he is 
a beast. He is marred. He does not look like human, more animal in him, I believe. He is the beast of beauty in the beast, but no one will kiss him. And yet, this week we look and we see that there is, for those who have come to see him dying for them, they see a beauty. They see a king. They see one who is not dying in defeat, but one who after everything is complete in the victory, then lays down his life. No man could take it before his time. So, I want you to observe the king's body this week. But before I do, a couple of last remarks for the introduction. Why is it important to observe his body on a cross? The Apostle Paul, a number of years, a year within a year after the death of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul would come to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and he went to both Jews and Gentiles. And he says in his letters to the Corinthian church, he says, you Jews, you want, in my preaching, you want me to show a sign. And you Gentiles, in my preaching about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you want me to give you wisdom. You want to go deep in Bible study. But I tell you this, I only preach Christ and Him crucified. And to the Jew, to the Jew, it is something that they mock. And to the Gentiles, it's something that they scratch their head as if a strange folly. The Apostle Peter would later follow his suit and he would say, it is Jesus Christ and His suffering that we long to have fellowship with. We long to be so intimate with His suffering body on the cross that we preach the very wounds of Christ. And then, the Gospel writer John, in writing this Gospel many years after the actual events to which he was an eyewitness of, faced a heresy. It was a heresy called docetism. I don't want you to remember docetism, but I want you to remember seemingism. Seemingism, because that's what docetism is. There were those that were teaching that it just looked like Jesus died. He really didn't die. His body was not really dead. It seemed like it, but it was not. So that when they laid him, as the story goes, when they laid him in a cold tomb on a slab of rock, he revived. He was only swooning. So it seemed like he was dead. So then his disciples could just kind of roll the rock away and he could come out or maybe in between the time of preparing his body. They didn't really put his body there. He walked or ran away somewhere. It just seemed like he did that. John, unlike the other gospel writers, includes things here to speak to that heresy. 
He wants you, the reader, and me to know that Jesus Christ was most certainly dead. Dead, dead, dead. But he wants us to know the favor of God. That that death, seemingism will not work. Because if he was seemingly dead, then I am not going to be seemingly alive. I'm still going to have to pay the price for my sin, which is the trans, my transgressions deserve, is death. And so John says, if he's really dead, then you can be really alive. If he's really dead in your place, then you can really never face death. Really. And that's where we're going this morning. And I want to show you very quickly in the time that remains, four evidences that he was really dead. And the first one is, is that he said so in verse 30, where he says that it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit now this word is famously to telestai it's one word as i said earlier and it means accomplished and accomplished in every detail it would be as if you had had a long-term strategy and plan and you had systematically systematically accomplished it until it's completely done and then looking back and saying there's nothing left to do. Theologically, in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, if you don't know this, this is Shepherd Shane Shardo's favorite verse. Um, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Did you catch that? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That is, the blood of the sacrifice on the day of Yom Kippur. The day of atonement was the blood of bulls and goats. And we're told in Hebrews that that blood just can't quite do it for a human being. It's got to be done at least every year by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's a lot. But theologically, what he is saying is what every Jew that day would know. That day, particularly as they're making preparations for this seven-day period of celebrating the Passover, it's the biggest day. It is Friday that he is now dying. He is, it's probably about 6 o'clock, 5, 6 o'clock in the evening, that they've determined that he's dead. The sun is going down. And the next day is Shabbat. Their holy, their Sunday. And so that's the holiest day of the Passover celebration. And on everybody's mind is the Passover sacrifice. On everybody's mind they would know that a priest 
would have been dedicating himself, spending over a month to take preparations to be personally clean so that even in the last week he would avoid even talking to people who had had a death in the family. And now the priest is clean, he is set aside, and now they will bring out a bull. And in front of witnesses, they will take, it's almost like a trocar, they will, they will take a knife that's got a certain, like a flute, and they will stab it right into the throat of the bull. And it'll bleed out. And then they'll have two goats. And on one of those goats, they'll cut its throat, and they'll mix the blood of the goat and the bull for the sprinkling of the altar, for the sacrifice of the people and their sin. And then they'll take that other goat and the priest will confess his sins and everybody else's sins on the top of this scapegoat. And then they'll send it out into the wilderness in freedom. So isolated. They knew that. They knew that. In fact, we believe that these temple sacrifices would continue for another 35 years after the death of Christ until A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed and they no longer had a place that they could meet the requirements for the sacrifices. They knew that. And it was graphic and it was gory. And in Western America, we're way too sanitized. You know, I buy my hamburger and I go a little ooh when I open it up and it's been sitting there for over a week and the blood's drained into the bottom of it. And it's like, ooh, well, you know what? There may still be at Two Rivers somebody that slaughters their own beef um, or observes it. But it's a very bloody, bloody thing. And they were very familiar of the principle. It began in Genesis with Cain and Abel. In fact, it actually began in Genesis 3 when God slaughtered innocent animals to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. They knew. They knew the sacrificial system. And on the cross, Jesus Christ is saying, to Telestai, it's finished. One sacrifice, one letting of blood, one broken body for all who would receive it. It's finished. No more animal sacrifices. Now, I've got to move on, but I want to give you a, a visual, an illustration of what I'm talking about. Donald Gray Barnhouse, preaching, uh, was, he, once, it was a, he had a radio broadcast, and uh, he's, a, he's just a famous theologian, but he was visited by a British sea captain who was the captain of the Mauritania. And the Mauritania would go from America to, to Britain, back and forth. And as he got close to America, he could pick up with a radio broadcast of Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he came to Donald Gray Barnhouse's office in Boston at one time and said, I listen to you all the time, but I've got questions. And Donald Gray Barnhouse said, well, before you pose your question, let's start at the beginning. Are you born again, and are you a Christian or not? And he said, that's my question. He said, I'm very fond of your preaching, and I have great respect for Jesus Christ, but I'm not sure 
and I listened to your sermon about the thief on the cross, the two thieves, one who would receive and one who would reject Christ even in death, and I'm not sure which one I am. And he said, well, let's start there. And so Donald Gray Barnhouse took him from his office down into a Sunday school classroom. And on a chalkboard, he drew three crosses. And he said, now Jesus being on the cross in the middle, we can say that on each side of him were criminals. And they had sin in them. They had sin inside of them. But Jesus Christ did not have any sin in him. But if you got a speeding ticket because you were driving way too fast, then you've got sin in you. You've broken the law. You did it. But if you, did, if you got away with it, then you don't have sin on you. You don't have someone who caught you and is penalizing you. But if you do get caught, then you have sin on you. And Jesus Christ took their sin on him. Now, has that been done for you? And he said, no. And he says, well, you have sin in you, and you have sin on you. Will you put it on him? Because he welcomes it. And he said, yes, with all my heart. Folks, it is finished. And if we go back and forth, I'm not sure if it's on him. I'm not sure if I really did that. Then do it today. But it's done. It's finished. It's complete. Secondly, we read in the scriptures here in the Gospel of John, and he's the. He, it seems as if he goes out of his way to say that there is not a bone broken. That the Jews are looking at their watch, and maybe it was like a sundial, sundial watch, like a Fred Flintstone watch. They're looking at their watch and they're saying, man, 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 man. We got to get this guy out of the way. We got to get this body out of the way. In fact, we want all the bodies there, but most particularly, we want this business done so that we can go to church. Get the man that we have lied about, we have falsely tried, that we have turned over to be crucified, get him out of the way so we can worship. Pilate, as was the custom, instructed the soldiers to go ahead and break the legs of these three that were there being crucified. Just do that all at once. But when they came, as it tells us here in verse 33, to Jesus, he was already dead. They did not break his legs. So you have a legal authority. You got a, a deputy here. You've got a soldier. They are familiar with death. You've got a squad of four Roman guards that this is what they do for a living as executioners. And they are saying, he is most certainly dead. 
we can now stand before Pilate and say, we didn't follow that order because it's ridiculous to break the bones of a dead man. Because that's the very purpose of breaking the legs. Because once you cruelly break those legs, break the legs at the shin, then they can no longer push up and hold their weight and they will sag and they'll basically smother to death or drown. But he is already dead. But there's something more afoot. And John goes out of his way to show you this because he says in verse 36 that these things, referring to both the bones and to the blood and the water out of the side, took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. The word here is pleru. It's the same word that is used in Matthew when it says the nets are so filled with fish that there's not any room left that they're ready to burst. It's so full. It is fulfilled that Scripture to the smallest detail was obeyed, was followed. It was the Bible of Jesus Christ. The words here reflect two things. We read in Exodus, you can read on your own, you can read in Exodus 12, verse 10, and Exodus 12, verse 46, that the instructions were that when a family, protected by the blood, they're now safe in the house, the blood has been shed over the door, they're safe, but in recognition of that, they're to eat the Passover lamb. And that that Passover lamb is to be completely consumed, but not a bone is to be broken. But secondly, we believe that if you go to Psalm 34, that Psalm 34 tells us that many, verse 19 of Psalm 34, which we believe to be one of the two Psalms on his mind, Psalm 22 and Psalm 34. Such was the power of Scripture in the life of Christ. Everything He did was according to God's words. Everything that God wrote, He followed gladly. He loved the Scriptures. Need I say more that we would do well to have our life come under the guide of Scriptures. All of our life guided by Scriptures. Our job choices, our relationship decisions, our lifestyle. Even if I don't completely understand. A bone not broken seems like such a small thing. He yielded everything. Everything would conform to Scripture. Psalm 34, verse 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, and not one of them is broken. What's the point, Phil? We also have afflictions. Ed Welch wrote... Ten things to do during suffering. And the very first thing that he said is, 
do not be surprised that you suffer. Because the Son suffered, therefore all those who follow Him will suffer. The righteous will face affliction. Just in many ways as the Son was so tried, we will be so tried. But not a bone will be broken. Not a bone will be broken. Your spirit won't be broken. You won't be broken. You will be molded and crafted and shaped to the resemblance of Jesus Christ itself. You know what that means to me? Stop whining. Stop whining. Stop whining. And look at it and say, Jesus Christ, strengthen me. Jesus Christ, remind me even in my mild momentary suffering of how you suffered for me. And may I follow your example and realize that even to the, the promise of Scripture that trials will come for those that follow the Son, there is the promise of Scripture that my spirit bone will not be broken. I've had a broken bone before. I was told by the, the orthopedic surgeon that it was the hardest bone in the body both to break and it was the hardest bone in the body so it would take some time to heal. It was, as it were, the heel bone. I think it's called the tarsus or something like that. All I know was that when I broke my foot in an accident, that it was a very busy month ahead of me. We had had a member of our congregation whose wife had died after a long struggle with cancer, and she was going to be married in Baltimore, out of state. Have you ever flown with crutches and a cast and a broken leg I had not I did not I thought well at least I'll get to be the first one on the plane I didn't realize that you're also the last one off and I also didn't realize that while I was able to get myself to the gate on crutches to fly out that the airline required that they have a chair ready to carry me curbside afterwards and would not let me walk I had to have a wheelchair to get me there. So I was last off the line, and I get into the chair, and the gentleman was nice enough. I didn't realize you were supposed to tip these guys. And then it struck me, you know, he's wheeling me through the airport, and he got me out, and it was the Baltimore airport, and at that time they were doing some construction, and so he kind of got me first by the first line of traffic, and I was at the center, and I needed to go to the next one to wait my ride, and while we were waiting for the cars to pass, I said, can I tell you how grateful I am that you wheeled me here, but I don't have any money. Now, I had a couple of large bills at that time, but I didn't have anything smaller than a 20. And I thought that was a little excessive to tip from just going through down the concourse in a wheelchair. And I said, I don't, I don't have anything to give you. And he left me right there. <laughs> and I thought, well, I guess I deserve it for not thinking ahead of a tip. And he's just like, Get you and, and left me there. And then I go to the church to do the funeral service. And the, the, the pulpit was a raised pulpit with one of those one of those spiral staircases to it that you look down on everybody. And it didn't my crutches wouldn't fit and they didn't have a handrail. They just had kind of a wide rail that went around it. And so I'm going into the pulpit with all of the mourners in front of me sounded like it sounded like, 
And, and they're, they're like, what is coming? And I'm grappling them, and I'm, I'm just clawing my way to get up there to, you know, oh, hi, I'm ready to give the funeral. A broken foot was such a, a nuisance. It was such a bothersome thing. Jesus Christ tells us, we're going to face affliction, but our bones, the, the spirit part of us, is not going to be broken. We're going to have trials. We're going to have difficulties. Oh, we'll even have broken feet. But the core of you, nothing's going to happen to you outside of what Scripture has said. And you can learn this by focusing on the Scriptures. Next we see that the, the soldiers came and they pierced his side. Now, I would love to go to great lengths here and to talk to you about the water and the blood and this being a phenomenon that we've never seen repeated, but doctors are sore pressed to rule it completely out. But they tell us that this could only happen on one occasion, and that is that if the heart itself were to experience a rupture. Now, some people falsely claim that Jesus died of a heartbreak. No, he did not die of any disappointment. He died victoriously. But his heart, under such agony of descending into hell on our behalf, may very well have ruptured. But suffice it to say that the point of the spear revealed, as John would testify, that he is most certainly dead. Once again, it's in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one, as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. In other words, when we look onto the pierced body of Jesus Christ, what we see is not simply now another cut, another laceration, bleeding with blood and water. What we see is Jesus Christ is dead. John, who testifies to this, is true. But we see also Jesus Christ fulfilling Scripture. And then as later writers testify, what we see is we see this is the point at the cross where blood is shed. We talk about the cross being where He shed His precious blood on us. And it's more than simply the blood that would have come forth from the pierced hands or the pierced feet or the crown of thorns. It would have been this blood. And I like what the church fathers say. Because the church fathers use this to teach that the water represents the cleansing, the washing away of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. The waters of baptism, the waters of baptism of the Holy Spirit wash us. But it's the blood of Jesus that is the sacrificial price that pays for that forgiveness. So we are washed and we are forgiven for the new life. All 
because he was pierced on our behalf. And then finally, as we look in these scriptures here, we find that there were two men that came and they took him down. Once again, this is in the fulfillment of the scriptures where in Isaiah 53 verse 9 we read that he would be put into a borrowed tomb, but it would be a a noble tomb. It would be a rich tomb. Things change the moment he says that it's finished. Notice now that the treatment of the body is very careful. The treatment of the body at this point when he says it is finished, they don't break the legs. And the piercing of his side is only the shedding of that blood that washes me and and, and forgives me. And they take him down tenderly. And, And Nicodemus... He must have been the one that was in charge of bringing the the spices because he brought it more than was needed. A hundred pounds. He would have had to have a servant to do this. He was effusive in that. Joseph, a, a member of the Sanhedrin, the very group that would have condemned Christ. Joseph, who would have none of that, now comes out of the shadow. And he risked his reputation and he puts his money and his possessions to work, and he's now a disciple of Christ. He lets the whole world see it by risking his position, his job, his relationships, and his finances. They're all now at the disposal of Jesus Christ. And for what? John Calvin says it was the cross. John Calvin imagines that Joseph and Nicodemus, by right of their rank among the religious elite, would have been there to observe Christ crucified and dying. But at his death, they got it. It sealed it. And it changed them to see Christ's death on their behalf now prompts them to take him down and to honor him and to worship him regardless of what others think. How they must have repented. Repented and mourned the days they let go by without following Christ. But now they will follow Him at the cost of their own suffering, at the cost of their own life. They will follow Him. And it all took place when they looked upon that body on the cross. This morning... We're a people who celebrate His death on our behalf. We're a people who come to this table and we celebrate the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's table that represents a body that was torn and broken for us and blood that was shed for us. And we do that every Sunday. Some of us wear crosses. Some of us have crosses and artwork in our home. At this table, we see the body that died on that cross. But we know by the promises of Scripture that this body would rise again. So we don't simply celebrate a fallen hero and memorialize him. We celebrate on this table in remembrance of that body, the king's body, in our place until he returns. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, I ask that you would set aside these things that we might partake of the bread and that we would see his body broken, broken, broken for us. But not the bones of the lamb, for he is our Passover. And we would see his blood pour forth, but not reluctantly, gladly pour forth as our sacrifice in our place to wash away all sin. And so help us to eat and to drink in remembrance of that on our behalf as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.